In today's episode, we open our Bibles to a brand new book, another letter of St. Paul, this time to the pastor Titus. We'll be covering chapter one. Paul's writing during the period of his Aegean ministry, this is right before he departs to Rome, and he's writing to one of his most trusted emissaries, that is Pastor Titus, who is on the island of Crete. And Paul begins, just as he had with his first letter to Timothy, with the qualifications for pastors, or as he says, elders, and then the necessity of keeping order within the church and resisting false doctrine. Good morning, folks, and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Monday, February 27th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Do me a favor. Next time you're online, head on over to lhfmissions.org. Find out all the ways the Lutheran Heritage Foundation helps congregations and missionaries spread the good news of Jesus with foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition. You can also reach out to them for speakers at your congregations. Again, that web address is lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show the Reverend Joshua Frazee. He's the associate pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Mayville, Mayville, pardon me, Wisconsin, and he's going to help us explore Titus chapter 1. Good morning, Pastor Frazee. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Thank you for having me again. So exciting to have you on. I'd love to hear uh, you know, your thoughts. Um, you, you are not uh, super long in the ministry. How long have you been in pastoral ministry, brother? Just under 10 years. This summer will actually be my 10-year anniversary uh, after being ordained and, and graduating from the seminary there at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Nice. Well, well, 10 years, that's quite a long time, actually. <laughs> I guess I was thinking a little less. A lot of the, our guests, though, you know, they have 20, 30 years. Sometimes we have Pastor Emeriti on. And I like guests like you and me, you know, we've been in the ministry for less than 15 years. And, you know, it's it's good to look at these qualifications for elders and I guess look at them from the perspective of someone who is in ministry uh, and, and, and I guess as dealing with the world in a way that a lot of ministers, uh, I guess, that are a little older than us have not dealt with. I mean, there's the world is so different, I would say, in our country today as opposed to maybe 30, 40 years ago, but probably not a lot different than what was going on in Paul's day. I, I, I just think that he's talking to Titus, and earlier we talked about him talking to Timothy, and, and they are living in a world that we are, I guess, rapidly becoming more and more familiar with. Yeah, yeah for sure. There are there the things that have been going wrong since Genesis chapter 3, uh, and it kind of ebbs and flows, goes back and forth a little bit. Um, and yeah, the, the pastors that were dealing with things 30 years ago, um, had their challenges, but, uh, even when I was growing up in the church, uh, back in the nineties and two thousands there, um, things were very different than what they are today for sure. Yeah. It's just amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, before we dive into this brand new book, uh, would you start our time off together in prayer? Sure. Let us pray. Heavenly father. Today is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we do, do thank you for this opportunity to get into your word, to remember the things that you said regarding pastors as the elders of the church, their qualifications, and to see that you have indeed called Paul to be your, your representative and that 
He then chose Titus to be the leader here at Crete. Help us to study your word, open our hearts and our ears through the receiving of your Holy Spirit, that he would help us to receive your word, to believe your word, and to live your word. These things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today, as I said, we're beginning this brand new book, uh, which is going to be, of course, not new in the context of Scripture, but new to us. We've been covering 1 Timothy, and then we covered 2 Timothy. These are the pastoral epistles, and now we're in the third pastoral epistle, and that is Titus. And Titus is in a bit of a different situation than Timothy or was uh, don't you think, Pastor? He, I guess, we always think of Pastor Titus as the as the older, a little bit more experienced guy. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yet, because the churches were so new, uh, I'm not quite sure of the time difference between writing to Timothy and writing to Paul. Uh, but the church, to a certain extent, don't get me wrong, it is the same church from the Old Testament now into the New Testament, but no longer looking for the Messiah to come. That Messiah was Jesus. Um, but now as the Jews are transitioning to become Christians, um, Timothy does this at a younger age than Titus does, but it is still church planting and those kind of things, but then also being aware of and standing against the false doctrine that was already starting to spring up. Yeah, First Timothy and Titus were probably written around the same time, uh, maybe the early 60s, because uh, 60 AD, of course. We know that Second uh, Timothy was written Later, in fact, as we talked about, uh, I guess just probably last week, the, uh, the the text was probably one of the very last letters that Paul had written, certainly the last in the scriptures, that would be Second Timothy. So Titus is written in between there, closer to First Timothy. But as you said, there are uh, similar things going on. We see that they share a number of similar concerns, a concern for church leadership, instructions for, <clears throat> pardon me, proper conduct and teaching uh, obviously, warnings against false teaching. And they also have a, a kind of a similar structure and language. You're, you're going to see a lot of similarities that if you were to compare them next to each other, you would not only say, oh, yeah, these are both written by the same guy, St. Paul, but you would say, yeah, this this really sounds like what's going on um, is the same at both contexts. Now, Second Timothy, uh, as we talked about in, when we covered it, it's a little bit more personal. But this still, we see here him having a lot of concern for passing down the knowledge. And I think we think of Titus as like the older guy, too, because, well, we it's just such an emphasis on Timothy being younger, right? Don't let people disparage you because of your youth and that sort of thing. Uh, right. And there, are, there are also some things that are left out, which I guess were probably assumed that Tim, uh, Titus would have had a good understanding of. But yeah, he's in Crete. He need, it says he left you in Crete. We'll get to that text in a minute. Um, but I guess he's in Crete because he has the same job as Timothy did, and that is not only to be the pastor, but to raise up and appoint, I guess, other pastors. Um, I, I tell you what, why don't we start reading so that we can get that on the table? And I just want to start with the introduction, just the first four verses. This is essentially what would have been on the outside of the scroll, on the outside of the envelope, so to speak. From the English Standard Version, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching which with I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus my true child in a common faith, 
Grace and peace from God the Father and from Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's sort of his introduction, right? He introduces himself, but what an introduction. He, he, he says Paul, it's like from Paul to Titus, but he says Paul, and then he has all that text. Take us through that, brother. Why is Paul adding like all these extra things at the beginning of his letter? Sure. From my reading and, and studying in preparation for our, our chat today, um, Paul, as he always does, reminds not only Titus, but his hearers, those elders that he is putting into place in those cities, but then also uh, the lady under them, that he has uh, been established as an apostle by Christ, by his uh, vision there on the road to Damascus, uh, that if anybody forgot about that, um, to remind them of the faith that they share. Um, and that way, when he gets into the challenges going on, such as you, you mentioned earlier, that he's going to have uh, to talk about some of the ones who are giving false doctrine, uh, that they recognize his apostleship and his authority, which has been given by Christ, uh, which is different than the, those who would be giving the false doctrine who would not have that authority from Christ. And so he kind of gives that all there, uh, both for Timothy and Titus, in this case Titus, uh, but then also then for the, the laity uh, that they would recognize okay, when Titus says something, it's by Paul's authority, which is actually by Christ's authority. Uh, and so that's the one that we want to listen to, not these ones who are saying other things. Yeah, and we always see Paul has this, uh, I, I don't want to say chip on his shoulder because it, it kind of gives it a negative connotation, but he really did struggle against those who didn't think that he had the appropriate reputation or the appropriate pedigree to be an apostle. And so we we are should be unsurprised to find that when he declares himself an apostle, he always says, you know, for uh, because God called me not by man, or in this case, that he's an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That is, he's not doing it for personal gain, but he's doing it to spread the message of God. And, uh, and, and as you said, then understanding where he's coming from, it does, it gives gravitas and authority to Titus which he's going to give some tasks to take care of while he's there in Crete. Yeah, and and it may very well be that he had somewhat of a need to present uh, his authority, perhaps because he had been, uh, you know, as his pastors even today, there are many who give them a hard time because they're they're bearing Christ's word and they don't want to hear it. Uh, but it may all, but it it also reminds the people that. Um, Paul may at, at times have had that chip on his shoulder, but he may also have been very humble, being the last one called to be an apostle. Uh, uh, it seemed like he had some humility in some of his letters as well to, to say, you know, I'm the last one pitch. I'm not as, as worthy as the, the guys that were called before me. At least that's kind of the way that I've read read that a few times in my reading of, of his epistles. Oh, I 100% agree. I certainly wouldn't want to suggest that he isn't humble. In fact, I think that the Born in his flesh, whatever that was, and the reality that he had spent a lot of his adult life persecuting Christians mm -hmm. certainly puts into perspective for Paul just the, the grand gift it was for Christ to not only call him to faith, but to call him to be an apostle. So that's why I said, yeah, I didn't really know what the term to use was. It, a little bit on the defensive side, it just seems like he's always saying, you know, hey, listen, I, I have a right to be an apostle, mm -hmm. but it's not from a, because I'm so much better than you. It's more from a, I kind of understand why you guys don't trust me, but I promise God called me. I guess that's sort of the sentiment yeah. that I was thinking. Sure. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. 
So he makes these things and he ends it with, you know, grace and peace from God the Father and from our Christ or from our from Christ Jesus our Savior, pardon me. And he ends this introduction, which is a pretty common way that people would have ended letters in general. They would have um even non-Christian letters would have appealed to some god or or goddesses and and in this case of course he points to the one true god. And then what follows and really the very first thought that he wants to give as he writes to Titus is what, what the ESV editors have called qualifications for elders. Now, I'm sure we'll go through it when we read it, but it's important to have some definitions here from the outset, I think. And when he's going to talk about appointing elders, tell the audience a little bit about why that's not maybe the way they think of elders in the, say, the LCMS church today, that it may actually mean something different. Sure, yeah. When it talks about elders in the New Testament, uh, especially as it's derived from the Greek, it's actually referring to those who would be pastors uh, in the congregation rather than elders as we think about them. We think about elders as being laity who have good scriptural knowledge, um, can work well with others, uh, who kind of assist in the way that Jethro encouraged Moses to find others to assist him. These elders today are one to assist the pastor or pastors uh, at local congregations. But that's not what he, he's referring to here. Here he's referring to the pastors who will be the the shepherd or the under shepherds of the flocks uh, at these locations. As he goes city by city, um, he's going to kind of encourage Titus to go city by city and appoint at least one elder or pastor, if not a couple, depending on the size of the city and all those kind of things. Right, and the Greek word here is presbyter or presbytos, um, and we we think of the Presbyterian Church and Presbyterian Church. Uh, while I'm not super familiar with all of their polity, they typically will have like teaching elders and uh, preaching elders. And again, please forgive me; I don't know all the the intricacies of it. But basically, they have these clergy they call elders, and that is um, fine. They certainly can set up their church in any way they want. Uh, but for us, we understand that presbyter in the context of Titus and First Timothy and Second Timothy um, is are the are going to be overseers. These are the ones who are uh, in charge of the local parish, so to speak, and that would be the pastoral office. And he mentions deacons in First Timothy, and and deacons were another role where they would have been assistants in some way to the to the pastor to the overseer. Perhaps they were men in training to become overseers. Uh, our elders today, as you've rightly said, are more of the, the servants that assist in those areas where uh, the roles aren't specifically relegated to the pastoral office. So they, like you said, they take they take the burden off so that you're not having to wait table, so to speak, and you can dedicate right. yourself to preaching and teaching. Mm -hmm. But um, so as we read that, it's just good for folks to know in case you missed our conversation on it the first time. Um, Brother Fazaro, with you, I'm going to read verses nine. I'm sorry, five through nine to get us the halfway through the qualification for elders paragraph. Here we go. Paul writes, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife." and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, 
upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, so we'll end there. So it's like you want to be a pastor. Well, here's the requirements. Once again, very similar to what we've already heard. Uh, and he's telling him, interestingly enough, to put things into order and appoint more pastors. That's not entirely consistent with the way we do things today. But in the early church here, that's pretty much how it was done. Yeah, yeah. And again, you know, kind of as things were were getting going from the transition, from looking to the Messiah to come, and now the Messiah has come, you know, now they're looking for the presbyters, the elders or pastors, uh, kind of city by city um, at those locations. And here are the qualifications, uh, as you mentioned, both in First Timothy and Second Timothy here as well in Titus. Um and for sure, it's a daunting list, and we'll get into that later, I'm sure. Uh, but also, we want to remember, too, that Paul said, or God says to Paul, rather, uh, that those who desire such things desire a noble task. And so it's not just to, to scare people away, but just to recognize uh, the, the good things of this office. Oh, absolutely. He says, you know, the kalu ergu, right? A noble task. And, and I like how you put that. It's not to scare people away, which is 100% true. Uh, but I would also like to think that in some ways it's to scare some people away, certain people, right? People sure. who think that, well, you know, I could make some good money doing this or uh, people who are arrogant, right? So they, they right. claim, I want to be an overseer. I, I, I've you know, had a vision that God wants me to be a pastor and they're just trying to, I guess, sort of weasel their way into leadership. Because, well, that's not really the style or, or the goal of pastoral leadership. Certainly, there's the role to be overseers, to give instruction and sound doctrine, as we see, and even to rebuke those who contradict it, and of course, teaching. But these, these characteristics aren't just for those who want to be overseers, but a lot of those things, um, with the exception of maybe you know the being able to teach, is for all Christians, right? Shouldn't all yeah. Christians act in these ways? Absolutely. I remember at the seminary, they they often referred to our, our ministry uh, out as pastors as being kind of inefficient. But what I keep telling my my congregations uh, that I've served is that you know as much as the pastor is inefficient, which he is, make no mistake about that. But actually, all of us who say that we are Christian are in the fishbowl. People do look to see how we live to see if it's different than how they live, if it's different than what they see in the rest of the world uh, or not. Um, so, uh, and, and uh, I know our senior pastor made the comment a few weeks ago in one of his sermons, he was talking about this young man he saw in a, in a shirt uh, that said follower of Christ. And he made the comment, you know, well, if you're going to wear a shirt like that, then you need to make sure that you live that way. And that is true of all of us, not just the pastors, but everybody. Oh, Absolutely. And in, in this case, I think it's interesting because he says, you know, I, this is why I left you in Crete, which is, uh, he hasn't said why, so we're having to wait now. Okay, this is why I left you in Crete. Okay, what is it, Paul? So that you might put what remained into order and appoint presbyters or elders in every town as I directed you. So I think it's fascinating, too, that in some ways Titus is serving as, um, I don't know, I, I guess to borrow a term, he's really serving as a, as a bishop. He's going around and he's establishing these elders. But although we get this list of the so-called qualifications, 
really, and I guess hearkening back to maybe the way CFW Walter would think, I, I assume that once he got there, he wasn't just randomly picking guys and saying, okay, this is your pastor. I, it might be safe to consider the possibility that he's going there and the congregations themselves are saying, okay, this is who we think should lead us. And then, of course, he still must meet those qualifications. At least that's how I picture it in my head. Maybe I'm too overly influenced by our polity. But uh, what do you think? How, how do you picture Titus going around and appointing these elders? Sure. I hadn't really given it much thought. I I can see value in what you're saying. Um, I know several years back, there was a video that came up on YouTube that talked about why this person loved God but hated the church. And coming up that weekend was the passage in the Gospels where Jesus is in the, the synagogue and he reads the scroll of Isaiah. And I said, he would not have been permitted to read that scroll or to teach on it if he if that was his first time stepping into that synagogue. Right. God loves the church uh, and uh, he wants the attendance there and it needs to be a regular attendance. And so, as you're saying, if, if that's the way that Titus was doing this, he would have been asking these laity Okay, so you say that this person is, is well-established. Is he a regular attender? Does he know the doctrine? Those kind of things, along with these qualifications, would kind of be my thoughts on that. Yeah, coming off the synagogal-type worship, you know, they would have invited uh, traveling or well-known rabbis or teachers to stand up and say something, or even elders in the community, you know, uh, not the technical elder, but just someone who's, you know, older and respected and well-knowledgeable. They might have the opportunity to read the scripture and explain a little bit on it, and that's how that worship went. There was typically not just one guy standing up front behind a pulpit. So, so in the Christian congregations, though, of course, there's there's this need be, to appoint people who are specific to that purpose because, well, I, you know, what's been revealed is not well known at this point. There aren't a bunch of traveling Christian preachers. Where you know, this is the the, the birth of the church here. And so, yeah, he, he's going, and I think you're right. He's probably looking at, in the same synagogal style, you know, like, who you guys respect? Who, who knows the word? Who's been a Christian the longest? And then he gives these, these explanations. He says, if they are above reproach, which I think that's the above reproach part, right? You know, if you're finding out who's respected. Mm-hmm. And then he says, the husband of one wife. Now, I think that's fascinating. I made a joke the first time we headed into this in First Timothy because I said, back at seminary, you always felt bad for the single guys who are living like in the isolation dorm at St. Louis. None of those guys are married. It's like, well, they're going to have to get married because in order to be an overseer, they have to be the husband of one wife. And they're currently the husband of no wives. But while that's not the point, uh, it is kind of fascinating because, you know, is this requiring a pastor be married? I think most of us would say no. But is this also permitting that as long as you're not a pastor, you can have more than one wife? I mean, again, I think we would say no, but you can see why people might be confused about some of those things. You know, why? Well, what is the significance of the husband of one wife? Sure. Uh, kind of by God's design, which which Jesus affirms this as well when he's when he's talking to the Pharisees and 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 the leadership about marriage. Uh, he says, therefore, let um, let a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And when you look at that in the Hebrew or the Greek, they're both singular. The man who leaves his father and mother is singular. The, the wife that he is joined to is singular. So it's one and one. This is God's design for marriage. You know, there have been times in the Old Testament where there's been uh, those leaders that married multiple spouses 
which often, if not every time, led to problems. But God's original design pre-fall was one man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his one wife, and that would be uh, the proper design for marriage. So I think that might be part of it. Um, and then as we get into that, that 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 uh, he and his wife would then you know bring up their children in in faith, um, and so the recognition of the husband having one wife and being uh, faithful to her is definitely something to be seen in a pastor. Is that faithfulness? If if we say that we love God but don't love our neighbor, you know, if if a pastor says that he loves God but is cheating on his wife, how is that a good pre- presentation uh, to the rest of the world? Oh, absolutely. I would also imagine that in this time, because people are coming to faith as adults, they're not lifelong believers because, well, you know, the the faith hasn't proclaimed. Christ hasn't been around for a, for the their lifelong. Well, I guess by this point, if we're talking about the '60s. You know, maybe Christ has certainly been resurrected. A lot of them could be in their 30s. So, so I guess they could be like Titus. I'm sorry, like Timothy. They could have been acquainted with the faith from childhood. So I take that back. But you're still having an abundance of adult believers who are coming into the faith and who, because they were previously pagan, would have a lot of wives or multiple wives. They would they would have a they would have brought into that a situation that they I guess at the time weren't aware would have been sinful. And so when it comes to someone who has to stand up front, as you were pointing out, it's important that they imitate God's design. So, you know, the husband of one wife isn't you have to go get a wife. It is if you're married, you need to have just one wife. In the same way, the next clause is and his children are believers. You don't have to have children. But if you have children, it's important that they be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is similar to when he told Titus that, you know, an overseer must be able to manage his household well. And I think Titus is probably a pretty good character to leave in Crete to call these people to these standards because, well, he's not a Jew. He's Greek. We find that out in Galatians chapter 2. He talks about Titus going along with him with Barnabas going up to Jerusalem. Titus had served as his representative to the church in Corinth also, where he was trying to uh, get funds for the Jerusalem church. But he mentions him being a Greek in verse 3. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So we see here that we have Titus, who basically has come from not a tradition of being a Jew or Judaism, but as a convert to the faith, as a Greek. And he comes in. And because of his reputation, people are going to listen to him. Um, Again, in 2 Corinthians, speaking about Titus, St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians uh, 18, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. So he he talks about Titus as being this well-known preacher. So he's coming in as a Greek, as a well-known preacher, as a a convert to Christianity at least some point in his life. He didn't grow up as a Jew. And he he has this authority, as you said earlier, to call people to these standards. Um, So I just think that is uh, something to keep in mind as we think about, like, why the husband of one wife? It doesn't seem like much of an issue today in our culture where having only one spouse is normal, but back then it would have actually been pretty significant. 
Sure. So yeah, we also know, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, you've been doing a lot more studying of of Titus in other locations than I have. <laughs> well, you know, we have this interesting, you know, debacle where we go through the text here, and sometimes we have to dig into, I guess, not just what's on the page. And Titus is one of those interesting ones where, yeah, he pops up elsewhere. And we get a little bit more information, whereas Timothy, not as much. We get a lot about what we know about him from the letters. Uh, but he, he says in verse 7, just keeping on going, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And boy, that I don't know if that burdens your heart as much as it does mine, brother, but overseer here is the word, um, it's not presbyter, it's the word episkopos. So that would be from the idea of a Episcopal, so bishop, essentially. So a bishop, as God's steward, must be above reproach, and it gives all of these little descriptions, these virtues of what it means to be above reproach. But as I said, you know, you and I are called to be pastors to people, to in the in the faith, be bishops to them, uh, holding out the true doctrine. But then, even in our own lives, we're to be above reproach, which is well, as you and I are poor, miserable sinners, it's impossible, isn't it, brother? Right. Uh huh. Absolutely. So that's yeah, hard to the, navigate. It it is, and and uh, yeah, I was, was going to say I had a brother pastor in my previous circuit that said, you know, none of us live up to these things. It must be the Spirit working in us to accomplish these things, or else none of us would do it. Well, right. So it's like, all right. So you want to be a pastor? Well, you know, here are the requirements, and it's almost as if I'm just sort of spitballing here. It's almost as if, you know, God wants you to look at all of those things and go, oh wow, I can't do any of that. I mean, be completely above reproach, you know, not be arrogant. Well, you know, you can be a, a person who's generally not arrogant, but it doesn't mean you're never arrogant about something. And, right. and you don't be quick tempered. But have you ever lost your temper? Uh, <laughs> drunkard or violent might be a little easier to avoid, but still greedy for gain. I mean, you're, sometimes you're always looking out for yourself, hospitable, lover of good. And we go through all these things. So the point is, you know, you need God's grace. You can't do it on your own, which is a message not only for just the Christian who wants to try to earn their salvation, but even for the pastor, for the overseer who thinks I'm God's gift to the church and God, God's lucky to have me as a pastor. Well, no one can say that. Even, even Titus, who Paul describes as being pretty famous for his preaching of the gospel. Absolutely. Well, take us through that list in seven uh, and eight, and uh, what do you see there? Well, you know, how can we apply that to not only the lives of pastors, but maybe to the folks listening at home, right? Because it's not just for pastors. Right, yeah, it's not just for pastors. Um, I was looking before at where it talks about the the um, arrogant, as we were talking about before, and I noticed Linsky defines the Greek word authades as self-pleasing. That would be self-willed or arrogant. Um as you were talking about earlier, you know, we, we all can fall into times of that kind of thing, of being self-willed. Uh, one of the, the idols that we face so often today is the idol of self. Do things my way, not listen to God's way, but do things my way, that the God of me uh, is definitely a temptation, as you say, not only for laity, but even for us as pastors, or to simply be arrogant. Um which we do need to be, as we'll get into later, uh, as pastors, that we need to be able to speak God's word uh, of law and gospel appropriately and to rebuke those who are speaking falsehoods, uh, which may sound arrogant to those who are speaking the falsehoods, 
but when it comes to, to looking back at what does God's word actually say, uh, that uh, we're not being arrogant, we're just speaking God's word and rebuking to try to bring the brother or sister back, um, but it can appear arrogant to others. And most certainly we don't want to do it in a way uh, that is uh, a way that we're aware is being arrogant. Yeah, we, we when we're trying to uh, work with somebody caught in sin or to uh, encourage someone to avoid sin, sometimes our tone of voice or things like that uh, can slip away from us and sound arrogant. And we didn't mean that, and we can apologize. I didn't mean to sound arrogant. I'm just trying to encourage you. Uh, but if we do that on purpose, we need to repent of that for sure. Uh, that you know, we we should not be arrogant with one another. Um, but so, yeah, we absolutely sometimes fall into that or sound that way, even though that's not our intention. Yeah, something very important for not only pastors to remember, but also parishioners, right? Because, you know, we, we, we do love the Lord, and we don't always, none of us, live up to His standards, and therefore we, as pastors too, need to seek forgiveness, both from God and sometimes from our parishioners. I tell you what, folks, uh, let's leave us with that thought as we think about it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, we are going to continue, Pastor Frazee and I, talking about Titus chapter 1. See you on the other side. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boone. With me today is the Reverend Joshua Frazee, Associate Pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Mayville, Wisconsin. Before we go back to our text, I just want to let you know, as I always like to do around this time, if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you know you can reach me directly at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. Don't forget the E on the end. You can also drop me a message on Facebook. I just love to hear from you. And you know what? Thank you for tuning into Thy Strong Word. Remember that you can catch us on the airwaves, on demand at kfuo.org. For those of you who like to listen on the go, download that KFUO app from the Play Store or from the App Store. You, I'm trust, trust me, you'll love it. You'll be able to tune into this program and other great KFUO programs. You can also subscribe to Thy Strong Word on your favorite podcasting platform. There are so many ways that you can listen to the show and hopefully share it with others. It means the world to me that you're here. And thank you for coming along with us as we study Titus chapter 1. So, Pastor Frazee, before the break, we were just getting into these lists, and we were talking about how, you know, even as pastors, there, there are these, uh, I guess, standards by which God says, this is what we need out of a pastor. And while they are certainly requirements for really all Christians to behave— Pastors are held up to a higher standard, which means maybe we have to apologize a little more often. But more than that, we have to remember that whenever we speak and teach, we are speaking and teaching in the place, in the stead, and by the command of God. And so that's a, that's a heavy burden for people. And I think that's why Paul is so clear in 
both of the letters he wrote regarding the qualifications for elders that uh, pastors take that seriously. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we are, as you said, representing God, and not to say that individual Christians don't when they proclaim God's word, but we are we are called to do that publicly. Right, and that that's the big difference here, which would be verse 9. He says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, that's certainly for all Christians, too. But then, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So again, in a soft way, this is the duty of all Christians, to be able to tell others about Christ, to be able to hold on to the word as taught, and and maybe even make corrections, right, in their vocations, fathers to their families, uh, wives to their children, and encouraging of their husbands and bosses to employees, etc., etc., etc. But the vocation of the pastor is unique um, in that they publicly represent the, the church. And so there's two things that are really standing out to me, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on them, is one, he that is the, 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 uh, the episcopos uh, or the presbyter, that is the pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and then give, of course, sound instruction, sound instruction in, uh, in doctrine. Pardon me, sound doctrine. <laughs> I'm getting a little confused here. So he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So the two things stand out to me. One, he has to hold on to that true doctrine, right? Pastors aren't formed in a vacuum. The, the message is passed down. And two, doctrine must be sound. Doctrine is important because it's also the standard by which we have to maybe rebuke people who contradict it. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. When I was re- reviewing this, again, you know, looking through the various uh, commentaries and things that we do with Linsky and, and the Lutheran Study Bible itself and things like that, I saw that it had talked about unaccused, which kind of goes at the beginning of this list and then again kind of is reminded there at the end. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, none of us know pastor can hold to these things in and of himself. He has to have God working in and through him to do these things. And this is kind of that general reminder that all pastors who are called uh, to publicly proclaim God's word do cling to the faithful word and to the sound doctrine. And then as you rightly point out, in order that they might uh, teach sound doctrine, but on, on the same line as teaching sound doctrine, we're also called and, and make the pledge as we're ordained that we will also kind of identify, stop, and correct false teaching uh, so that we uh, don't have that being spread in our congregations and so people don't get confused by the uh, various myths and, and false teachings that are out there, but that they, they remain in that good sound doctrine uh, to which the pastor himself even holds, holds uh, keeps hold of. Right, and if we're talking about the idea that there's still probably pretty a lot of crossover with the with the synagogal style worship, there's probably a lot of guys coming through wanting to teach certain things, teach different things. Um, he well speaks directly about some of those folks in the following verses, which I want to add to our conversation. I'm going to read verses 10 through the rest of the chapter, which is verse 16. Paul continues, "For there are many who are insubordinate." empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. 
Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who, in, who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow, that's some pretty strong language for the Apostle Paul speaking of who he calls insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and in particular, the circumcision party. Who's the circumcision party, and and what is he talking about? Sure. Again, as the transition happens, which we talked about before the break, uh, is that the transition was going, it's the same church from the Old Testament to the New, still believing in the same God, but now we recognize who the Messiah is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. And so now there is the New Testament, the new way of doing things, kind of the new churches coming together. Uh, the Jews are now calling themselves the followers of the way and eventually calling themselves followers of Christ or Christians. Um, as that is happening, there was a discussion going on about those Gentiles coming into the faith. Again, Jews were becoming faithful to Christ, but then the question is, well, what about Gentiles coming into the faith of Christ? And the reason for that questioning was because there were a lot of moral commandments, and not only moral commandments, but also ceremonial commandments, including circumcision, that the Jews had been practicing their whole lives for how many centuries since that was originally commanded by God. And now the question was, do Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And the councils discussed this, and by the working of the Holy Spirit, they realized that would mean that they were being saved, at least in part, by doing a work. Uh, And so then they rightly recognized that, no, they don't need to be circumcised. Otherwise, that would be saying that they, by their work, uh, in addition to what Christ had done, uh, is saving them, whereas our, our salvation is is free and full in Christ alone, uh, as we as we rightly and, and joyfully proclaim as Lutherans. And so the circumcision party then are the ones who are continuing to say, no, these Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved, even though the councils had already kind of been discussing and, and came to the realization, no, it's only by grace that we're saved. Uh, it's not our work, but by Christ's work that we are saved, not through this work of circumcision. Right. So, you know, and I bring this up because it's really important. The circumcision party, and later he mentions Jewish myths. There have been some people, and of course, everybody's looking to be divided these days. But there are some people who say, look, this is anti-Semitic, right? He's just against Jews, which is laughable if you know anything about St. Paul and you know anything about the, the foundation of our faith. So the circumcision party, just for those who might not understand, and the Jewish myths, This isn't about an ethnicity. This isn't about being against certain people. This is about being against false doctrine that leads people astray. Absolutely. Right. So they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by their teaching. And then he adds again for shameful gain. Just like earlier, he said that the overseer must not be greedy for gain. Basically, if you're getting into this to make a bunch of money for yourself, it's not going to happen. Wow, there's something that we can learn. It's not as though the pastor must be take vows of poverty or must you know uh, live as indigents their whole lives. And there's certainly nothing inherently sinful about having any money at all. But there is something about shameful gain. 
you know, what, how might we see that shameful gain at work today? I mean, we think about them back then, but there are plenty of people who, even in this time when, when the world is so set against Christ, there still seems to be plenty of people making a lot of money with, with a false gospel. Oh, there's, there's so many ways. Uh, and again, you know, uh, not to sound against a particular ethnicity or religion or things like that, but you can get sometimes TV evangelists that almost make it sound like if you just give money to this church, you can get a Lamborghini. God has promised you a Lamborghini, even though the Lamborghini word is nowhere in the Bible uh, or things like that. Uh, there are those that, again, as we pointed out with the circumcision party, they would say that you must do work in addition to what Christ has done for you to be saved, uh, which is not what the, the scriptures clearly teach. And so it's it's very much a danger uh, to those who believe that it's by grace that we're saved, uh, to that they would hear people saying this and, and might get confused and start believing it themselves. Right, absolutely. But then... Um, you know, we talk about trying to be gentle and kind. We talk about treating people with uh, with respect, and that's those are all good things. In fact, they're biblical things. We teach out of love. Uh, but then when it comes to those who are simply leading people astray, who are upsetting whole families, Paul has such heavy, hard words to say. And I think verse 12 is one that I think— um, is one that I've actually personally struggled with my whole life as I read it, because it's just, it's interesting. It's like a, a st- well, it's a stereotype. And it seems like he's affirming a stereotype in verse 12 and 13. So he uses this example of the Cretans. Now remember, right? He's on the island of Crete, or rather Titus is. So one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gut- gluttons. But then he says, this testimony is true. So it kind of seems like he's saying, and we actually use that word today, don't we? A Cretan, it's, it's kind of a, a slur for someone who's you know, uh, like a creepy guy, a Cretan. Well, that's coming from, from this or from this stereotype. Um, what, how, how, do we, uh, how do we, I guess we approach these, these negative uh, behaviors associated with a people, which is certainly hyperbolic, but how can we kind of, I don't know, how do we deal with that? Sure. And yeah, this is something that that could definitely be wrestled with, especially in today's culture, uh, for sure. I like uh, what Linsky kind of said about this. He said that Paul would not say that he's referring to all Cretans in Crete uh, and also to all the church members. That's not what he was talking about. He was referring to those rightly to be called mind deceivers. It's kind of like the idea that every stereotype comes from somewhere. It doesn't mean that everybody uh, that is of that particular culture or race or any of those things, always do those things. But the idea came from somewhere. Uh, it's kind of the idea. And then, as he, as you say, he, he says to rebuke them sharply. In another place, kind of the commentaries would say that he you know, kind of says gag them. And again, some people might think that that's very severe. But again, what is the danger? If they are not gagged, then false doctrine can spread and uh, those not strong in their faith or struggling with their faith could be misled. And that is the danger uh, to which Paul then rightly uses that strong language of gag them or rebuke them, uh, or even you know using the stereotype of, of Cretans uh, to say, you know, this is not a good thing to be passed along because he so desires that people be saved by the good truth of the true doctrine. Right. And I think he also is, he's quoting a philosopher named uh, Epimenides. 
And Epimenides is, again, he's, he's not a Christian. So I think there's something to be said, too, that he's essentially saying, listen, one of their own, that is, those who are outside the faith, are, are giving these, these, this, this bad kind of stereotype against them. And you're right, he's not talking about every person who's from Crete, but rather it's this stereotype of who he's talking about, the empty talkers, the deceivers, the circumcision party. And so he's just warning them that, you know, you're living in a time where even those who aren't Christians will recognize that there are basically wicked people among you, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so he says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, isn't that the point? Not so that we don't have to deal with them or not so that they'll die and go to hell, but but rather because of correction, because of love, because we don't want them away from the church or away from us. We want them with us, but with us in unity, not disunity. Absolutely. I've tried to encourage that with, with the uh, catechism class that I'm currently working with. And I've tried to encourage that over and over again is that when you practice Matthew 18, uh, when you go to your brother or sister one-on-one or bring two or three along with you or even bring it to the church, or even if it would get to the extreme, extreme, extreme point of, of excommunication, the desire is always that they turn, repent, and be saved. Our desire is not, as you as you rightly put it, that they would go to hell. Our desire is always that they would turn, repent, and be brought back to unity with us. That's that's always the end goal that we that we desire, and that was definitely Paul's goal. You know, he and he talked you know about his fellow Jews that he tried for years and years to try to to bring to the faith, and he he says in one of his epistles, and maybe you know which one it is, that. Uh, you know, he still desires for his fellow Jews to become to to come to the truth and be saved. Well, absolutely. I mean, he identifies as a Jew, which is why I rejected outright any sort of silly notion that he's just anti-Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, he he loves his people. He loves his heritage. And as we touched on a little bit at the beginning, he probably thinks back to his own conversion and says, I was lost and look how lost they are. And he just I, I bet his heart aches wanting them to. I guess, know as he knows and see Christ as he sees Christ. That should be our own position towards others. Right. So we also go back into the Jewish myths, but this idea is not new either. Way back in 1 Timothy 1.4, we talked about this, folks. Remember when we said that they weren't to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith? So this was just something that was part of the culture. Jewish myths, there would have been Gnostic myths, Greek myths, all kinds of things that were luring people away from the truth. And boy, brother, doesn't that happen today? You know, there, it seems like no one wants to read the scripture, but they'll, they'll watch maybe a, a Discovery Channel show on some new hidden apocryphal writings or something like that that, tell, that claims to tell the true story, but they don't want to build up their knowledge of what, God has already given us in the Word. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there are so many, so many that do that uh, in so many different ways, as you said. You know, in the New Testament times, it was the Gnostic party and the Circumcision party, and all these different parties and things. Today, they're they're the same. There are those that claim to know about God, uh, even though you know, they don't point to any scripture to, to back them up or things like that. Um, I was reading earlier that it said false teachers claim to know God. 
but their actions or words prove that they are not his people. So even though they say they know God, and even though some of their actions uh, might be good in terms of benefiting others, but their very words, which go contradictory to God's word, is an action that shows uh, that they are false teachers and that they're not his people. You know, we, we often say that we want to look at actions as to uh, whether they are in alignment with God's word or not, but even the words said are in action. And so even if they do good things for others and they say that they, they love God, but then by their very action of speaking these false doctrines, that is an action that proves, well, actually that's not quite correct. And so once again, encouragement for pastors and lady alike to be in God's word. What does God's word actually say? Um, Paul says elsewhere, test everything. And what do we test everything against? Against God's word. If we hear a teacher speaking about this, we should look at God's word. Is that what God's word actually says? Or this teacher, does this teacher say what God's word actually says? And I even encourage my my members to look at me as to what I say. Because I, I say, I am not perfect. I am I'm not infallible. I can make mistakes. And so if I say something that's, that, that's not quite correct, call me on it. Because uh, I'd rather correct myself and be teaching the right doctrine than, than to just keep going on saying the wrong thing. And so I encourage uh, my members to be in God's word, to be in the book of Concord if they want to go into the book of Concord uh, and, and read that for themselves so that they're not just relying on me, but so that they know it for themselves. Absolutely. And that's where we we see here how Paul ends at least this section. Now, remember, folks, you know, the, the chapters are divided and we're not going to get into chapter two today because the thought really keeps on going. But for our purposes today, we're right here at the end. And what the, the pastor guest has just said, right? Paul says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for any good work. And so, um, as Pastor Frazee was saying, it really goes both ways. You can do good works, and yet your words will betray you if you're not according to the Scripture and what you teach. But you can also teach good things, but then your works will betray you. And so, we have to be very discerning folks, guided by the Scriptures. Uh, that's why we have to be in the Word, so that we can well, call out the, the, the problems when we see them. Because whether you're a pastor or a parishioner, we all have an equal duty before God to be true to the word of God. Uh, brother, anything else as we're here at the bottom of the show, anything else you want to leave the people with? Uh, let me think about that for a second. So there was another thought I wanted to point out, especially um, I know that this is uh, going to be presented after the fact, but this is being recorded a little bit in advance, just kind of an interesting thing. And maybe people can think about this next year when we get to this point, uh, talking about the transfiguration that's going to come up this Sunday as we're recording this, you know, it's after the fact for those listening in. But what's interesting is at the beginning of the text, it Paul refers to God, our Savior, and he also says Christ Jesus, our Savior, which demonstrates the divinity of Christ. And so as we've been hearing this word today, this, this strong word that we've been talking about, you know, it comes from Paul, who is the representative of Christ, and Christ is God, as we see at the transfiguration, uh, and also then as, through Paul's words there, that God is our Savior, Christ Jesus is our Savior. It's not that we have two Saviors, but they are one Savior, God, who is Father, Son, Jesus Christ, and Holy Spirit. It's his word that Paul is proclaiming and is now authorizing Titus to continue proclaiming as he goes city by city, uh, planting elders and pastors and presbyters uh, as he goes along. 
Well, that's a good thought for us to end on. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Joshua Frazee, Associate Pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Mayville, Wisconsin. Pastor, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. And tomorrow we are going to continue. We'll open the next page, which is chapter two, entitled Teach Sound Doctrine. Paul continues this thought of the importance of sticking to the word of God as taught, and he also gives him guidance on how to treat different folks according to their stations in life, older men, older women, younger men, etc., etc. So tune in tomorrow as we get into this topic a little more. But for now, we'll have to say goodbye. Folks, don't go anywhere. After the break, there'll be another great program right here on KFUO, but we'll see you tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.